Oh, hi, I'm Alan Gannett. And I'm Shane Snow. And you're listening to Creative Hotline, the call and advice show dedicated to helping creatives reach their full potential. Today, we're answering questions about creative collaboration. So what is the ideal type of creative partnership? How do different types of diversity make a difference when it comes to teamwork? And what's more important, talent, open-mindedness, or something else? All that and more in this episode of Creative Hotline. Creative Hotline, leave your question at the... Hi, Shane and Alan. My name is Juan, and I'm from Mexico. What would you say is more important in team collaboration? Talent and experience or openness and productivity? Well, I mean, Shane, you literally wrote a book on teamwork, so no pressure, but I want to hear what you think. <laughs> so I, I think this is an interesting question because he's sort of putting uh, these traits on different teams, saying talent and experience or openness and productivity. And uh, and it makes me wonder if uh, if Juan is trying to make a choice himself right now, because that sounds like two people who uh, who's picking between who have a, a different mix because talent and experience don't necessarily go together. You can be talented and not have experience. You can have lots of experience and have no talent. Um, but I, I think if I were to take what he's asking uh, kind of at face value, I would say that openness, that whatever team has the openness on it is the one that I would lean towards just based on my work around teamwork. That even if you have a lot of talent, even if you have a lot of experience, even if you have a lot of productivity, at a certain point, you're going to be limited as a team by people's uh, inability to adapt or their stubbornness or power dynamics that you know get in the way of things. And so if you want to have limitless creative potential, what you need ultimately is openness. You could use all of those other things, but if you don't have an openness to changing your mind, to rethinking your ideas, to letting go of the first thing that comes to your mind, those kinds of things... Uh, you know, in psychology, we call this intellectual humility. Uh, if you don't have that, at a certain point, you will hit a wall. So that's what I would I would choose is the team that has openness. So I will, you know, not to disagree with the guy who wrote a book on this, but the one thing I will say is I think when you look at successful teams, it's not just about the quality of the ideas, but it's also about the ability to get the ideas heard and recognized. And so there's a study that I talk about in my book um, that was researchers at NYU looked at the teams that made movies. So the sort of combination of writers, directors, screenwriters, yep. all you know, all that kind of stuff. And what they found was that the most successful teams were either, there's two options, either consisted of people who are roughly in the middle of the establishment and the fringe. So these were people who had the credibility of the establishment, some of the best practices of the establishment, but the new ideas and the willingness to experiment of the fringe, they were sort of in the middle of that spectrum. Or, and this is really interesting, or they were teams that consisted of people who separately were either part of the establishment or the fringe. So this might be a very experienced director with a very fresh screenwriter. And they found that those combinations were also very effective because there's something when it comes to teamwork and creativity where it's not just about creating an idea that is sort of nominally interesting or good, but can you also gain the recognition of that idea to actually get people to, you know, to give a shit? It's interesting because, you know, Hollywood is a perfect example of like gatekeeper culture. 
And some of what uh, what you're talking about there, I think, has to do with the gatekeepers that you know either have the money or the access that you need in, to, in order to pull off a big production. They will listen to or be accessible to people who have experience, who've proven themselves, who've paid their dues, which is something that I personally hate. Um, and so that makes sense. But but I, I think when I see studies like the one that you're talking about, uh, and and there's they have similar studies, you know, with like Broadway theater and uh, all sorts of things. What uh, what it reminds me of is what I wrote about with police officers, actually detective partnerships, which is that if you have a kind of a think of like the buddy cop duo who's out to solve the case, um, research shows that if you have two cops or two detectives who are demographically different or who are the, the areas where it had the biggest impact, uh, I guess, were if you have a male cop and a female cop, you have a, a veteran cop and a rookie. Those are the two main categories. There's some other categories too, but what they found is those partnerships made better decisions, were able to small, solve crimes more confidently and reliably than when you had two cops that were too similar. Um, and, you know, this gets into a, a whole thing there. But I, I think what that gets at is when you can't assume that both of you are thinking we're going to solve this thing the same way, whether they're talking about a crime or making a movie or whatever, you can't assume that, then it forces you to be a little bit more open to different ways of doing things, to learning from each other. Now, some people will become real stubborn and it won't work out and the movie falls apart. <laughs> but if it doesn't fall apart, then having people who are coming at it from different angles, uh, it, it forces you to be a little bit more creative than you would otherwise because you can't uh, assume that you're on the same page about everything. So I, I think that there's probably a lot of reasons for you know, the outcome of this study that you're talking about. But, uh, but already, you know, I, I, I see a couple of different angles on creativity that all get back at this same idea that you got to be flexible if, uh, if you're going to do something different and new and great. Okay, I can buy that. You know, look at us. We came together. Here we go. <laughs> okay, now it's time for a segment called Creative Hotline Fling. Okay, for those of you that have been listening to the show, you might have thought that I said Creative Hotline Bling because every once in a while we do a segment called Creative Hotline Bling where I ask Alan trivia questions about Drake. But that's not what this is. This time, on theme with our creative collaboration questions that we've gotten this week, we're actually going to change things up a little and do Creative Hotline Fling instead. And basically, it's a question about a fling. Two people that have a fling, not a Drake song. And I know Alan Drake is an amazing collaborator, and so we should be talking about him because we can learn a lot about teamwork and creativity from him. But, you know, we're changing things up anyway. So are you ready for the question, Creative Hotline Fling? I'm ready. Hit me. Not literally. Well, I can't because we're on different hemispheres. So I'll just hit you with a question. <laughs> All right. The question for Creative Hotline Fling is who did legendary singer David Bowie briefly pause his music career to have a fling with in 2006? So who did legendary singer David Bowie briefly pause his music career in order to have a fling with in 2006? Was it A, Billy Idol, B, Madonna, or C, Nikola Tesla? <laughs> uh, okay. So I don't think it was Nikola Tesla for many reasons. I A being that he is long dead. 
uh, unless someone named someone after. So you this, think? Which I don't think happened. So you think? Yeah. So you think? Um, you know, I, I, if I remember correctly, David Bowie is part of my extended gay family. I think he's bisexual. So you know, Billy Idol could be for sure. Madonna also seems very credible. Mm. I don't know. I feel like Madonna and David Bowie seems a little too, almost too perfect. Like that would make too much sense, but it's also a fling. So it's a brief, it's a brief moment. And so maybe that would make sense, but was Madonna married at that? I don't know. I'm going to go with Billy Idol just because it seems a little more punk rock. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go with Billy Idol. Final answer. Final-ish answer. <laughs> Whenever someone says final answer, it it, it 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 it's like it's a bit definitive, I guess. Yeah, well, but uh, it's like telling someone, "Are you sure?" And when they were sure, they're no longer sure because you said final answer. <laughs> final right, answer. So, <clears throat> okay, so David Bowie, in my opinion, one of the great artists of our time. Uh, he was taken too soon, but. I will say that he, unlike you, would have guessed right on this question, but he's gone, so he can't guess right, and you guessed wrong. So cue the music. <laughs> All right. So this is a trick question. Kind of. The answer is C, Nikola Tesla. And what, what? the story is, yes, in 2006, David Bowie showed up in the movie The Prestige, playing the role of Nikola Tesla, Christopher Nolan's movie The Prestige with Christian Bale. Oh, I object. And... This, is, this, is, this <laughs> has been a trick. I've been tricked. He took a break from his music career, put it on pause briefly to become Nikola Tesla. And so we could call that a fling. Uh, you know, I didn't necessarily define fling as a romantic affair. I just said two people having a fling. So, uh, yeah. Sorry, Shane. This is this is I I have been I have been properly tricked. I with that with that note on that somber on that somber note of trickery, we're gonna go on back to the voicemail. <laughs> hey, Shane and Alan, it's Joe from New York, and I was wondering what the ideal creative team is today. Like in the Mad Men era, it was a copywriter and an art director. Is it still that, or is it something different? Thanks, guys. So this makes me think of, I, I believe, the very start of your book, The Creative Curve, when you talk about, uh, you know, John and Paul and the Beatles and, and you get into, you know, creative duos. So I, I think I would actually like to relinquish the floor to you, Alan, and, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this, you know, post-Mad Men era, is there an ideal creative duo question? We're so deferential today. Oh my God. <laughs> our, 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 our parents would be proud. So I think obviously it depends on your profession, right? So every profession is different. And the key theme that I would hit on, which I think also speaks to sort of Joe's blast in the past reference, is that when it comes to creative teams, a lot of times people mistake the idea of finding people they gel with as finding a good collaborator. And so you know, we look for people who are maybe similar to us, who we like working with, and we take those people on as collaborators because we're like, oh, this will be fun. And in reality, that's the complete wrong approach. What you really want to do is focus on your weaknesses. So what I've found is that the most successful creative teams 
the people on the teams are very aware of what they're good at and more importantly, what they're bad at. So think about Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Steve Jobs, amazing marketer, great product mind, not that technical. So he had to have Steve Wozniak, and he knew that. And even early on, Apple hired multiple engineers. They raised VC funding very early. Jobs was acutely aware of his strengths and his weaknesses. I mean, much later, for example, he really relied on Johnny Ive to actually execute on a lot of his sort of design philosophies, Mm -hmm. which he knew that he couldn't actually tangibly execute himself. And so I think that idea of knowing your weaknesses and finding people who can help those weaknesses, that is really what's essential. I like that. You know, there's research going back to like the 1970s when we first started doing business research. And uh, and researchers started looking at what makes people happiest at work, what makes them get along best, you know, in a office environment as that was starting to become more of the work culture was the white collar culture. And uh, there's a slew of research that came out that basically said, if you work with people who have similar interests as you, who you can communicate with easily and, uh, you know, and, and get on the same page with them very quickly from a communication standpoint, because you have similar perspectives and ideas and backgrounds, then you will be happiest at work. And the thing that we've done over the next 40 years is taken that research and used it to conflated it basically uh, with uh, being productive at work or being more innovative at work. And you know, over recent years, I'd say the last ten years, it's really actually started to uh, to click. Uh, but we've discovered or realized or remembered that actually getting along with people because you have similar interests, because you can have your own shorthand, you because you know. Uh, the inside language or whatever, that's not the same thing as adding up to more than the sum of your parts or being creative. That That's a smooth working environment, which might be happy, but it's not necessarily an innovative or creative one. And the thing that actually you want is people telling you what you don't know, showing you what you can't see, being able to actually debate things from different points of view and have creative disagreements. And, uh, and so you know, for me, a big part of my work with teamwork has been about uh, how do you help a team have that friction, um, you know, be able to engage from different points of view? How do you build the kinds of team that have the different points of view while also having things not get personal? So how, how can you mm-hmm. not get along well is sort of the, the key phrase that I, I come to because getting along is great until it means that you're kind of trapped, uh, you know, in a one kind of mode of groupthink. Not getting along helps you get out <laughs> of the groupthink, but you want to be nice to each other too. So you can do both things. But that's that's where I go when I hear this question. Is exactly what you're saying, Alan. If you have a band with four guitar players, you're going to make guitar music. <laughs> you're not going to make you know <laughs> rock and roll. I like that guitar music. That is that is uh, <laughs> that is the, the strongest condemnation language I've ever heard. Oh, it's guitar music. <laughs> So speaking of disagreement, it is time for a segment that we like to call creative disagreement. Yes, that is battle music because this is a time where we talk about something we disagree on. And in this case, something where Shane is clearly wrong on and I try mm-hmm. and make him explain himself. Shane, here we go. Okay. All right. Shane, you posted, this is a quote from you. I have the receipts. You posted that 
quote, I'm convinced intellectual humility is the number one thing leaders and citizens can develop if we want to make the world better. And I'm not convinced, Shane. There are so many things that leaders could do to be better. Why would intellectual humility be number one? So I I have a very good argument for this, but I'm curious if you have a number one that you would put above intellectual humility. Yes, I would say empathy, because I think empathy is a skill that makes us, if you're a leader in business, it makes you create better products, better services, it makes you manage a team better. I think in your personal life, empathy is sort of the connective tissue between all people. And so I think that I'm more, I'm generally someone who think focuses, I like to think i more interested or curious about the sort of emotional state of people. Um, And I think that tends to be where I think there's more action and improvement to be had. Interesting. Well, and I wouldn't disagree, actually. So for, for anyone who's listening that hasn't heard us talk about intellectual humility in the past, what intellectual humility is, is it's a virtue that psychologists and philosophers talk about that basically is the place in the middle between being too stubborn to ever change your mind and being so gullible that you can never make up your mind. Intellectual humility is a willingness to revise your viewpoint in light of new information. It's a eagerness to seek out new information so you can know if you can get better. It's uh, a respect for viewpoints you don't understand and separation of your ego from your ideas. So it's this this very cool thing that at a high level is uh, sounds more philosophical than actual. The reason why I was confident enough to put on the internet that I think it's the number one thing that leaders can develop (laughs) is because intellectual humility is kind of an upstream trait that leads to a million other traits. So if you are able to practice intellectual humility, it actually can lead you to have more empathy because putting yourself in other people's shoes, trying to understand what it might feel like to be someone else is about transcending your own viewpoint and considering the validity of someone else's viewpoint, which is, uh, that's putting intellectual humility in practice. Uh, So, you know, so it sort of absorbs these things. If you are intellectually humble, you'll be better at uh, forgiving and asking for forgiveness because you'll uh, have an easier time making mistakes and knowing that that's okay because we're changing all the time and and actually being fixed is bad. Aren't there there situations where sometimes vision and clarity of vision is almost more important. So the idea of sort of charging forward and intellectual humility, I think I I hear the sort of aspirational version of it you're saying, but I could see a world where in a lot of positions when you're working on something hard or challenging, if you spend too much time sort of being humble about your ideas, you could actually sort of lose that clarity of purpose that I think can be very motivating now. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I mean, that's why I like to think of it on this sort of moral virtue spectrum. Too much of any good thing becomes a bad thing, right? Too much courage turns into <laughs> recklessness. You run out into battle with no armor on and you die. Um, so there's absolutely a danger in over-indexing on humility. I mean, humility itself is kind of a sub-element of wisdom. You know, what I think you really want is to be able to be wise about the decisions you're making at any point you know, figure out what are the tools in my toolkit that I should use when I approach whether solving problems or coming up with ideas or, you know, just dealing with dilemmas. And so intellectual humility is about the willingness to change, but it's not the, uh, like, 
change for change's sake. You know, it's and when you combine it with some other things that are kind of part of wisdom, like uh, seeking other perspectives, like loving to learn. Actually, they uh, philosophers define wisdom in part as being creative, looking for different ways to do things. Um, those things all, I mean, they all kind of are in the same sort of cloud of ideas, but intellectual humility is the willingness at the end of all that to change your mind. So there are people who are willing to hear out any argument or willing to consider any idea, but never willing to change their minds. They're, they're listening mm. because they want to, uh, you know, they want to be right. They want to find a way to defeat you, not because they, mm. they might change. And so I, I think that it's, you know, maybe it is, a little bit hyperbolic to say it's the number one thing. But I think when you add intellectual humility to an equation that contains, say, courage, or that contains wisdom, or that contains, you know, some of these scenarios that you're talking about, you, you want to have empathy, intellectual humility can help you do that better. So that's that's why I define mm. it that way. I could be I mean, wrong about how universally applicable it is. But, uh, but yeah. That was a pretty intellectually humble answer, Shane. <laughs> you're, living, you're living your values. You're pretty, that's living the thing your you're supposed to say at the end. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, let's hit the voicemail. Hello, Shane and Alan. So um, my question is, what role does diversity play? Diversity more in like anything, you know, like culture or expertise, profession, I don't know, like language, like everything that will fall into the category of diversity? So, you know, I think that, you know, he's using a pretty broad definition of diversity here, but I'll start more narrow and then we can broaden out. But one of the things that I was fascinated by is that creative industries traditionally have actually not been that diverse. So if you think about campaigns From like Oscar So White, and, you know, just racially, gender wise, I mean, if you look at how for such a long time, you know, white men have dominated Hollywood, you've seen that, like, you would think that creative industries, which you would almost inherently think of as progressive, as liberal, often are actually not that way. And the reason why, in my mind, comes down to the fact that creative professions are such a social phenomenon and, you know, so much of creative careers are built by having mentors, by having people who lend you their reputation, who sort of pull you up with them. And inherently, we know that people tend to mentor people who look like them, who come from similar backgrounds. Yeah. And so since it's such a relationship-driven profession, creative industries, what you find is that it actually further perpetuates a lack of diversity when it comes to sort of more traditional forms of diversity. But I also think you know, this question is interesting because it seems like he's also talking about diversity in sort of other forms or other formats too. Yeah, well, I, and I like that, you know, on, first of all, this is a, a nice question that to follow up the ones that we've talked about already, because in many ways, everything we've been talking about is this idea of the cognitive diversity that different people bring to a creative environment. You know, you, you want different teammates who are bringing different tools, expertise, experience, talent, perspectives, all of that, that, that is what adds up to a more creative team than just a creative person or a group of people who think the same. Uh, that's, that's the core premise of, uh, of basically the theory of synergy, you know, I'm, I'm doing air quotes that no one can see, uh, but people can only add up to more than the sum of their parts if they are bringing different things to the, the table. Um, so when I 
hear questions like this, you know, I, I zeroed in on what he was saying uh, about, you know, diversity in all of its forms, cultural diversity, you know, diversity of thinking, that kind of thing. And I think I zero in on that because I, I tend to notice when people in American culture say the word diversity, it is often, almost always, I would say a shorthand for race or gender, maybe sometimes sexual orientation, but, but for usually it's a shorthand for visible things that uh, America mm. has had historically a lot of problems uh, being fair about. But, uh, but you know, I, I like to, so, you know, when you were saying that, I, I, I jumped in and I said, well, what kind, you know, uh, what are you referring to when you say diversity? Because I like to, as a habit, specify demographic diversity or cognitive diversity or generational diversity. I like to, to add little adjectives to it just to be, kind of specific about it. And what I find is that when I do that, it reminds me that people are much more complex than just the first salient trait you can see. Um, so mm -hmm. this is getting kind of far afield from what you were talking about with, uh, you know, with Hollywood and creative industries, which I think is, is a super good point, right? Like th whoever has the power is who creates the social environment where the next generation can thrive or where, you know, people can come in and collaborate. And so the people in the majority in America, say Hollywood, men, white men, they're the ones that had the power as Hollywood is starting, continue to have the power, continue to mentor people who look like their friends and family. And not saying that everyone's doing this for shitty reasons, but that's sort of the natural way that a lot of that's come about, even for people who say uh, that they, they aspire to be more inclusive along the lines of race and gender. I, I think that... For me, I, uh, I think that it's a very powerful question to ask ourselves, what kinds of diversity will help our teams do better? And what can we do to make it so that when a person who's different along some line, and it doesn't have to be just race or gender, someone who's older or younger or comes from a culture, you know, they may have the same skin color as you, but they come from a culture where things are very different. What are the types of journeys that people can have been on? because of who they are, that can add to our thinking pool as a team. And I think that, you know, taking Hollywood again, movies would be potentially messier if there were more different types of thinkers in the mix, uh, in the making of them. But they would also be, I think, more creative, more interesting than the mm -hmm. same cookie cutter stuff that you often get when it's the same crew getting back together to make Zoolander 5. You know, you're not getting <laughs> a whole lot of creativity. Um, so there's, I mean, there's a ton to unpack here, but I, I think the premise of, you want people who think differently and uh, thinking differently is going to be a product of being different, looking different, having lived a different life. And, uh, and so if you can optimize for that, but if you don't pay attention, that's not gonna happen naturally. What will happen naturally is, uh, a group will form around similar interests and backgrounds. And uh, and then you have uh, campaigns against you on Twitter when you realize we didn't intend this, but we are a really fucking white uh, group here. Hmm. Well, you know, I think one of the things too that's interesting is if you think about where the best ideas come from as a creative, you know, we talk a lot about the idea of the best ideas are sort of a combination of the old and the new. They're taking an established maybe genre format frame and adding a new and novel twist to it. So inherently from that perspective, adding diversity to your team in any form is going to allow you to better enable to do that just from a definitional foundational perspective. So I think, you know, building diversity into your creative teams is not only 
the right thing to do, not only helpful, but I would go so far as to say essential if you want to do good mm. creative work. So Shane, what are, what are your big takeaways from this episode? Well, I think everything sort of led up to this idea that is at the core of, of a lot of what we talk about on Creative Hotline, which is the more building blocks you have and the more different the building blocks you have in your creative process, the more potential you have. So in earlier episodes, mm. we've talked about living a big life, you know, gaining experiences that are broad and diverse. I, I think that applies exactly to what we're talking about with picking a creative collaborator for your band or your company or, you know, your project. I think about all of this in terms of not just your team, that's your permanent team, again, in air quotes, but who are the people that you have as your informal team that you tap into when you're trying to solve problems? You know, who do you go and consult uh, for their ideas? Who do you run your ideas by for feedback? Who do you talk through things? Who do you learn from? And are those people all kind of similar to you? And if they are, this gives you a very good excuse to do something that's both pragmatic and morally good, which is expand your circles. Um, it's going to mm. help you be more creative. Uh, just like bringing those people into a formal team will help the team be more creative. Totally. And I think I think when it comes to teamwork and it comes to collaboration, I think a key word that comes to me is intentionality, right? So mm -hmm. a lot of these things that we have to do, we have to be very intentional about who we work with, how we work, you know, what we work on. And I think for a lot of us as creators and creatives, we can sometimes fall a little bit into sort of following our whims or following our mm -hmm. gut feelings. I think that often can serve as well, but it can often be detrimental, especially in something like teams or sometimes our natural proclivities are not actually the best proclivities from a productivity and creativity standpoint. I, I love so, that. Well you know, said. <laughs> Here well, we are being all shiny again. <laughs> Shane, you're wrong. Well, with that, um, do you have a question for us on anything creativity related that you'd like to hear on the show? Well, all you have to do is visit creativehotlineshow.com from your phone or computer to leave us a voicemail. We are here to answer your questions, so put us to work. In our next episode, we're going to be digging into a topic that we get a ton of questions about, and that's one that's dear to both Alan and my heart, which is writing and publishing books. Oh, and if you like this episode, well, we could use your help. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Bye, friends. Bye, Shane. Bye, Alan. Bye.